Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Classic City Crime. I'm Cameron J, and I cannot even begin to go into this week, y'all, without saying thank you, thank you so much for answering the call to help us replace our dear laptop, which finally met its untimely, very untimely demise. With your help and with a little push from the Baker family, shout out to Meredith, we were finally able to get one very quickly to remain on schedule and bring you this week's episode. See, we could not do this without you. Thank you. Thank you for being in the fight for justice for Tara. This week, we've got quite a lot of information to cover. Over the last few weeks, we've taken a look at several key persons of interest, including the odd classmate in Tara's law school section, the boyfriend who spoke out on the podcast, the attorney with which Tara worked, and the maintenance man of the Deer Park subdivision. We've also learned a little bit about a guy named Ant, who numerous sources say not only had Tara's laptop after her death, but who also claimed to somehow be involved in Tara's murder. Finally, last week we ended on the notion that perhaps a woman could be involved. Do I have evidence to prove this? No, not necessarily, but here is why I went there. When I first spoke to FBI profiler and author of For the Children, Jeffrey Reinick, we got into a few disagreements, actually, over Tara's case, and we went back and forth about several different possibilities. Since then, however, we've talked several times, and just this week we spent over, I would say, two hours talking on the phone, reviewing Tara's case and what we've learned about her death, the fire, as well as those close to her and those who were in her life in some way, shape, form, or fashion, whether peripherally or knowing them personally. We reviewed her family history, we talked about her close friendships, and yes, we discussed some of the gruesome details of the violent crime committed against Tara Louise Baker on January 19th, 2001. Now, Jeffrey is a guy I've grown to like, respect, admire, and yes, trust quite a bit, and his willingness to always chat with me about Tara's case, which is quite puzzling, as you've grown to know, is so appreciated. His expertise in this field really do help me see where I should go next and what might be the best route. Now, during our first conversation, Jeff really made an interesting comment that I ended last week's episode on. And I'll admit, at that time, I didn't give really much credence to it, and I honestly didn't look into it at all. But the more I've stared at my wall in my office, which is now overgrown with photos of Tara, timelines, and information about the case, news clippings, and so on, I've put a lot of thought into whether or not a woman's involvement could be the case. And so that's why I decided it's time to bring Jeffrey back to the podcast to discuss everything we've learned and what he thinks about the case now. Because keep in mind, when I first talked to him, I was still in the infancy of learning about Tara, who she was, and what happened to her on that fateful day nearly 20 years ago. Thankfully, over the last 16 weeks, we've learned a lot, right? (laughs) So here is a little bit of my chat with former FBI profiler Jeffrey Reinick. I want to warn you that some parts of this interview might be disturbing for some listeners, as we will address some very sensitive issues like violence, sexual assault, and trauma. Listener discretion is advised. All right. Well, I am back here with Jeffrey Reinick, former FBI profiler. Jeff, how are you? Fine. How are you? I'm doing good. Doing good. As good as we all can during these times, right? Um, Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me. I wanted to bring you back on. Most of our listeners enjoyed having you on the first time about Tara's case. And, you know, when we when we first talked, 
we really were kind of in the infancy of this investigation, and we didn't know as much as we know now. And I think we've come a really long way, and I think that you helped us kind of in the beginning kind of know which ways to go. So I appreciate you coming back on. Oh, sure, sure. I, you know, anything – you know, I, I, I don't mind talking to you. I would I would never, you know, do anything to work against a police department or in any way um, compromise them or whatever. So as long as the questions are not something that is, um, you know, against the police department, I'm, I'm good to go. So I agreed to try and steer clear of that, and our conversation began. Some of these questions might remind you of our first conversation, but keep in mind how much we've gathered since that initial chat. First, I wanted to ask Jeff about something that has been bothering all of us, something we've gone back and forth about. Does he, as a former profiler with experience, believe this crime was committed by someone Tara knew or did not know? Karen, you know, Based on the information you just shared with me, you know, I, I want to know, again, that um, the person, you know, you described to me that there was a strangulation with the ligature. You described to me that there was an attempt to burn the body. And you also described to me there were stab wounds. Let me talk about that first. I believe that the person who did this, I think there's a a strong possibility that they have never committed a murder before. The reason I say that is because if the strangulation was effective and succeeded in taking her life, then why have the stab wounds? And what I believe, I've actually experienced a case where uh, there was a teenage boy and his friends killed him. But after they acted against him to kill him and, you know, when he was going through the throes of death, he was making noises through his throat. And I know that the boys then described that what they engaged in then was to try and stop the noises because they couldn't stand hearing them because they did, you know, have feelings for him, as strange as that may sound. So I believe from what you're telling me that there's a possibility that she was killed with the strangulation and that the stab wounds were an attempt to stop the noises that were coming from her as she was dying. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that's a real possibility, but it also causes me to believe that a person who does that has not experienced the death before. And that's why I think the person that did this, um, this might be their first one. Another thing that, Uh, I'm concerned about is that everything that you've explained to me that was used in the murder and in the, uh, the attempt to uh, burn, nothing you've described to me was anything that was brought by the perpetrator to the apartment for the purpose of committing the crime. So I believe that the person went there not intending to do the murder or at least Uh, not thinking about what they needed to do the murder, and therefore they used items that were there at the apartment. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, tells me that they didn't go there prepared for a murder. And the way it's described, I think it's very likely that whoever did this was someone that knew her. Now, before we go to this next part, I wanted to let you know of one thing. It has been reported before, and is nothing new uncovered necessarily here, that no successful sexual assault occurred. 
but that there was bruising in the area of which a sexual assault would take place. Jeff and I talked about this very sensitive subject and what it could possibly mean. Then uh, you described to me the bruising, and I'm trying to think, you know, the bruising, uh, based on what you described, was premortem. And if that is the case, and there's a lot of bruising in the genital area, then more than likely because she had already been neutralized by the strangulation or somehow restrained or, or unconscious that, you know, here you have a person that's just kicking her or beating her or whatever they're doing, or, but they're, they're hitting her over and over again in her vaginal area. And to me, that expresses a lot of anger. Mm-hmm. Um, in stabbings where people are, are killed and you hear that the victim has, you know, 30 or 40 stab wounds, that, that's a angry killer. That's a killer who's killing and they get into kind of like a, a frenzy of stabbing. I wonder if it's possible that this person was kicking her as an expression of anger and just kept kicking and kicking, and that's what caused all this bruising. I do believe this is someone that knows her. I would look in her life for anyone that was obsessed with her, always with her, somebody who pretty much made her their life. And this is a person I believe that would have found ways to be with her no matter what she was doing or who she was with. And uh, and that's a person I would be looking at. Also, you had mentioned that there was a person that had moved out of town. You know, I don't know when I work these things myself and I'm the investigator, it, it's never good to look at a person and say, oh, that's the person. Mm-hmm. What I like to do is I start with the last people that have seen the victim and I go through a process of eliminating them because in the concept of things, you know, most people you talk to are not going to be the ones that did the crime. It'll be easier to eliminate them to, to confirm them. But then when you do find that suspect or that person that you can't seem to eliminate that keeps having more and more coincidences, um, that would also, you know, then that's a person you have to start thinking about, well, if I can't eliminate them, maybe I should see if I can confirm them. Mm-hmm. I would review her phone records. I think you're going to find that if there was someone who knew her, you're going to find that there, this person didn't call or did staged calls or, or left staged voicemails mm-hmm. afterwards, um, things like that. And so, you know, Cameron, that's that's kind of where I'm going. You had mentioned to me that um, there was uh, a person she worked with who moved away and changed their name. That, of course, is reason. I'm not saying that's the person that is responsible for this, but you definitely want to find out why. Why did they do this? And if it's a person that knew her and knew her well, well, then it's important to understand. And I believe, and I said the first time that you should look at women and I reaffirm that now that, you know, you should look at a woman as well as a man. You shouldn't rule anyone out because they're a man or a woman. Um, and what so, what do you think – that was one thing, Jeff, that you said initially when we talked that I was like, what the heck, you know? Um, but now that I've come to where I've come, there there is a lot to look at with that. You know, you have 
the possibility of a jealous wife here if Tara and the attorney were becoming friendly. You have the possibility of friends that are jealous of that relationship, so on and so forth. But when you first said that, I didn't know what to think. Is there anything specifically about the crime itself that makes you think that there's a possibility to be explored? Well, I think the person who uh, got in there because she knew them and they knew her. Mm. And I think if it were a person like a angry wife, um, Tara would naturally, I would expect her to be on guard if a person like that came to her door. Mm. And uh, when you look at the timing of when this happened, I think you said the fire occurred in the mid to late morning hours. Mm -hmm. Was there any ability to determine the time of death? Investigators believe the time of death estimated around 7.45 a.m. Okay, so um, you're you're talking about, uh, in my opinion, you know, my first thought process is that a person went there early in the morning and, you know, who – who goes to people's places early in the morning? I mean, really, you know, do you go visit people early in the morning? Do you go knock on the doors early in the morning? If, especially if someone doesn't know you're coming. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then if the if her time of death was around 7.45, 8 o'clock around then, and you've got the fire that's starting between 10 and 11, it sounds to me that the person showing up and then the if there was an altercation or if the person had a, a key to the door and was able to walk in, let themselves in and surprise her, that they were there that whole time. So I would be looking at phone records for that time of uh, and see if you've got anybody making calls. If I were an investigator, I'd be getting the phone records of the people I was interested in and, and seeing what they were doing those times. Because it sounds like you have a pure, fairly good defined period of time when the person who's doing this is not going to be, you know, available. Mm. And that's a person. So if you've got somebody who's not on their phone during that time, but yet uses their phone extensively, that, that's a clue, things like that. That's that's what I would be doing if it were my case. And, Jeff, one thing that we didn't talk about really, but I did want to bring up is that note of access to the apartment. Um, it's really kind of hard to determine that because if you ask the initial investigators on the case, they'll tell you that someone entered or exited through a window. If you ask the current investigation, their whole theory on the maintenance man being involved hinges on the theory that they were they opened the door with a key and locked it back with a key. Um, so it's really hard to determine which of those is true based on who you talk to. For me personally, that could change things, of course, if they lock the door behind them as someone with a key. So what if it was this maintenance man guy? Um, what does that theory say to you that it could have been, you know, this maintenance man guy who comes by for a work order early in the morning, sees an opportunity, takes it, um, and then, you know, actually returns to the scene of the crime that day with the rest of the staff of the property to view it. Investigators view that as suspicious. I think it's normal protocol. But what do you think about this theory that it could be a maintenance man or someone random? It would be my expectation that if it were the maintenance man, who would have access to this apartment and would be able to let himself in, that, of course, you'd want to look at his records of work when he gets there, what he's doing, what jobs he's reporting on, uh, any alibis he might offer. And then, most importantly, you're going to want to do a background on him and find out if he's got any previous history of sexual assault. This, to me, is, you know, I would have also expected uh, if it were a maintenance man or someone – 
that they would have made penetration into her. Mm -hmm. um, what you keep describing, which keeps, you know, rattling around for me is the bruising in the vaginal area. Why is there bruising in the vaginal area? You know, we see bruising with children, you know, but um, if she's an adult woman and she's uh, engaged in, in, you know, normal um, adult relationship, you know, why, why would this person find it necessary to bruise her? Mm. And that's why I shy away. Now, I would definitely look at him. I would look at all these people that had access. Absolutely. So that's the whole point yes. of the investigation is to take all of these people. And then with the investigation, the investigator is going to be able to see, he's going to be able to eliminate some people, and he's going to be able not to eliminate some people. When you have that person that you can't eliminate, and you keep finding more and more that flags them, well, then you've got to consider that person to be more than just a suspect. Sure. When looking at this crime and hearing about, you know, all of the things that happened, the fire that came afterwards, do you think that drugs could be involved with the person who committed the crime, or do you think this is someone who is very aware of what they were doing? I think this is someone who's acting out of emotion, out of anger. You know, if a person were there for money or drugs, why would they then take the time to strangle her, stab her, and try and just, you know, burn her? You don't find a lot of people trying to burn their victims. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, so I do believe, especially when you describe the strangulation and, and the wounds, this is a person who is not familiar with how a person dies. Therefore, mm -hmm. I believe they may not be familiar with murder. Mm -hmm. and that they were trying to think through it as they were doing it and what they could do to try and prevent themselves. I'm sorry about the dog barking. No, no problem, no problem. My cat meows in the podcast sometimes. Well, so. <laughs> we've got a uh, St. Bernard and a Great Dane, and the, uh, they get, they're very, very good about uh, protecting us. One thing that's really interesting about this case that bothers me about the theory of the maintenance man looking for something to turn for drugs or something of that nature is, the only thing that was stolen from Tara's apartment, or excuse me, her home, even though there was money laying out and expensive jewelry, Tara had a fine taste. She was a refined Southern woman. That's what everyone says. Um, all of these really important things laying out that could be easily turned for money. But the only thing taken from Tara's apartment is the laptop computer. But mm -hmm. also... Tara kept a filing cabinet of everything in her home. So she had a file in that filing cabinet that had her computer's CD-ROM on it, you know, the setup CD-ROM, had the instructions to it. That was also taken with the well, laptop. Well, thank you for sharing that. that tell, I really believe it's someone who knew her. It had to be someone that knew her. And when you were telling me that something was taken, you know, when I think in terms of a sexual assault, the offender will oftentimes take things. And depending on the offender, you know, interviewing the defender, getting to know the offender, they'll take things as a trophy to show that they did it and were there, or they'll take things as a souvenir so they can remind themselves that they did what they did. When you discuss taking a laptop and an associated file with the laptop, that's a person who clearly knows Kara as a person. And it's definitely, well, I don't want to use definitive terms, but to me, this lends more to the belief that this is a person that knew her. Mm -hmm. And especially how would they know 
to check her file cabinet for the hard drives or the CD-ROMs and what are on those ROMs, what was on the laptop. And the only thing that comes to mind is why would you take someone's laptop, well, if they were conferring with you or, or talking with you, you don't want people to know that. One thing that I wanted to ask you about, just because of your experience in law enforcement, how often have you seen in your line of work where police hyper-focus on one suspect and overlook others because of whatever reason? Um, you know, whether it be that if they look at this, that then ruins their theory for this person. You know what I mean? How often have you seen that hyper-focusing, um, and what does it take to kind of shake that? Well, Karen, I, I have seen that, and I am guilty of that. So. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that the behavior describing is a rite of passage for an investigator becoming a older, smarter, wiser investigator. Mm. Every investigator I have known who's worked cases like this have at one time focused on a suspect only to be let down that it wasn't the person. Mm -hmm. And that's happened to me. And it's a tremendous... if. What, what I'd like your listeners to know, and, and especially if anybody looks at my book, mm -hmm. you know, we care. In order to work these things, we let, allow ourselves to become extended victims. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking to a, a police department, they want to solve it. They care. Um, and, and to that extent, they allow this to affect them. But if they don't have a lot of these cases or if the investigator is, is a new investigator, Many times, you know, they'll focus on someone and and believe that's it and start, you know, looking at them. If you look in my book at the Yosemite case, you'll find that uh, I was removed from that case by the head of my office, who then became the head investigator himself. And because he wasn't experienced, he did exactly that thing. He focused on two people and it turned out not to be them. Mm. It doesn't mean they're evil people are bad or incompetent or anything. It just means that, you know, you make a mistake and you learn from it. Our society does uh, mature and change. And, and sure, surely in 20 years, that's an, an issue that factors into it. But, you know, the bottom line is you have a woman that was murdered. Someone killed her and is still walking around. And that person needs to be held accountable. Thanks again, Jeffrey, and please, everyone, be sure to check out this book. I'm not just plugging it for the podcast and to get him to come on. It really, really does take you through his work and really lets you see what people in this type of field go through on a day-to-day -day basis and how it affects them and their families. As a former apprentice funeral director and embalmer, I actually found it to be very comforting and very relatable. So make sure to check it out for the children on Amazon. When we come back, more people have come forward about the ant over the last few weeks with very specific details about Tara and the crime. Could someone have known all along what happened to Tara? Did police ever take this lead or this new witness seriously? This really is a bombshell interview that you do not want to miss. We'll be right back. All right, in the way of classic city crime announcements this week, number one, Wednesday, September 30th was International Podcast Day, and it's such an honor to be host of a podcast, and by the way, a few of my favorites are Funeral Stories, hosted by my friend Casey, Broadbusting with Tracy Brown, and of course, my friend Dr. Parati's Forensic Psychology Podcast. 
Also, I wanted to remind all of my listeners that voting by mail is currently underway, and October 12th begins early in-person voting. November 3rd is election day. Be sure to do your part. Alright, thanks for staying with us. Now, you know the story of the guy named Ant, and it's probably something I haven't really told you, but it has been on my mind and bothering me, actually, since I really started looking into Tara's case. I knew about him much earlier than I shared in the podcast, and I just wanted to vet a few things before sharing it with you. Here's what bothers me about this. Number one, you'll recall a drug dealer says Ant brought him Tara's laptop but he did not take it as Ant didn't know the password or login information. Two, another source came forward and said that Ant appeared at his home, hung out with his roommate, and then his roommate shortly thereafter had a laptop. And also, Ant mentioned being questioned in Tara's case to this source. Three, several unnamed sources have spoken out about Ant boasting of his involvement in Tara's death, yet police continue to say adamantly that he was vetted and that he was interviewed and that simply his version of the crime did not match the facts of the case. Four, remember Tara's mom was once at the arch in the years after Tara's death and a homeless man walked by and said, we all know the Ant did it. You can only imagine how chilling this moment was for Miss Virginia and I when we made that connection on the phone casually one night. And five, there are reports of a man matching Ant's description being in and around Deer Park that day. In fact, a report from a local paper written at the time says a witness saw a man fitting Ant's description in the community around 8 a.m., I think. Also, I've heard this from other people that lived in Deer Park who have reached out and random motorists who passed by the community that morning. The problem with this is, I'm going to admit, it's hard to get a lot of people who are associated with Ant in 2001 to talk, and you can probably guess why. Yet, I knew if I prayed and believed long enough that someone somewhere would come forward. This week, they have. I got a call from the woman you're about to hear from whose voice and name has been changed to protect her identity with a very detailed story regarding not only her encounters with the ant, but his supposed encounters with Tara Louise Baker. Again, some parts of this interview might be hard for some listeners to hear. January of 2001, we're about 16 then. Yeah, a little... Oh, yeah, I just turned 16, not past September. Um, both of my friends are 17 at this point. We met Aunt downtown and through some older girls, like I mentioned. And he's pretty well-known all over town. At first, he was very charismatic. He was interesting. He was well-spoken. Um, he's He was older than us, quite a bit older than us. And, you know, he seems like a fairly nice person to be around. Um, like I said, he would come to house parties, you know, where we had other friends or at. Then he he was very into drugs during this time. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't something that we, we were, like I said, we were much younger than this group. So it wasn't something that we experimented much with other than like, you know, maybe smoking a little weed or something. 16, it was, you know. Yeah, so, and we didn't really even drink or anything, so, but we still felt like we were cool hanging out with this little crowd. Anyways, he got a little more, you could kind of see him starting to unravel a little more. He would get a little bit more aggressive. He was meaner. So we tried to kind of distance ourselves from him, or I did, mostly. Um, My friend who, who, he actually confessed 
this crime to you is the one he won't call. Um, so they, she had, for, I don't know why exactly, like I said, it's been you know, 20 years almost. For some reason, she was with him at a hotel room that he was staying at. Mm-hmm. And um, they were not romantically involved in any way. Um, I think it was just like there was a party hotel room. Mm-hmm. And he is smoking crack cocaine at the time. She's very uncomfortable. She wants to leave. He starts talking about how he has to talk about how he's done something wrong, that he's committed this violent crime. And he kind of he confesses that he was the one who um, killed Tara Louise Baker. This is probably, I'm going to say May-ish, so, so late spring maybe. He said that he, he came up with this elaborate story about how he's breaking in, didn't realize that someone was there. A lot of very, like, terrifying things. I'm going to jump in right here. For the sake of the investigation, I am not going to detail what this woman told me about what Aunt said happened to Tara Louise Baker, but this is something I will tell you. Everything that I know to be true about what happened to Tara, this woman describes perfectly. So once my friend um, Kate, we'll call Kate, so Kate comes and immediately calls one of our other friends to come and get her. She's scared. She wants to leave. This is a bad situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so then Kate comes to my house, and of course I still live with my parents. We all still live with our parents. Comes to my house, and I'm like, this is very serious. We need to like tell the police this information. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't tell our parents at the time that this happened because we're young and we didn't want to get in trouble for hanging out with older people. Mm-hmm. So we went to Athens Park County inside and spoke with, and made a report. Mm-hmm. Um, I stayed in the car. And the reason I remember it being spring or summer because it was very hot and we did not have air conditioning. <laughs> in. So I stayed in the car with another one of our friends who was also very concerned. He was an older guy as well. Um, and he was like, this is concerning. At first, the police were kind of, okay, let's hear your statement. Then they kind of got a little bit more involved with, you're giving us some information that isn't known at this moment. Like, the only thing that was kind of known at the time was that there was a fire. And I, and they never told us what information that, that they provided that mm-hmm. wasn't known to the public. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we later followed up, you know, kind of called in, like, hey, where does it stand? We're scared of... He was, first of all, he was brought in for questioning. We do know that. Um, so he's brought in for questioning, but he there was not enough evidence to hold him based on the testimony of, you know, two 16-year-old girls or 17-year-old girls. Ah, what do we have here? Another source not taken seriously. Can you believe it? Sarcasm intended. Another lead cast to the side simply because it doesn't fit the description or the narration that investigators want to exist about what happened to Tara and who they think is responsible. I find it downright frustrating and I want this brave woman to know that I believe her story. Let's continue listening. Um, And of course, he denied it. But then he got very aggressive with us. And he obviously knew hey, you know, you you must have told the police or something like that. Um, there was a different time after this. Well, maybe it was before it had been before. So before this confession, right after the crime was committed, 
I'm assuming, because I was still in school, so it had to been January, February. He, I was being picked up. He was picking up someone else, maybe a, a niece or a cousin or someone from that school. And he didn't have a car. So we were like, whose car is that? And we remember him clearly saying, this is Terry Baker's car. And it was a burgundy sedan of some sort. Me again, just wanted to pop in to say that I do believe this story probably occurred, but that this vehicle described does not match one of Tara's or any of that associated with her. So what did the police do with all of this information that they got from these two 16, 17-year-old girls? Well, take a listen. The police basically told Kate, we appreciate your information. If anything else comes, if, if you remember anything else, if he ever says anything else to you, we need to know it immediately. We, we, he has been questioned. Um, you know, we, we can't do anything with this information. It's kind of what we were told. Well, it was exactly what we were told. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this point, we're all kind of scared. Um, he's, like, really aggressive towards us. I'm completely, like, will not speak to him, avoid him if he's somewhere. Um, there is a bar that used to be in Athens called Mean Mike's. Mm-hmm. Um, he used to rap and DJ there. Um, they'd have like open mic night and stuff like that. Um, and you know, we, I would avoid him if I saw him there. Um, there was one time where, um, because I was avoiding him so much, I guess he assumed that I probably was the one who had tried to get him in trouble. Mm-hmm. And he had screamed across the street at me. He's like, I will tear a baker you and blah, blah, blah. He would boast about this. Mm. In the Globe, he would bring it up a lot. Um, he would bring up that he was into um, sexual strangulation, which in 2001 was kind of like more like, oh, my gosh, than it is now mm-hmm. as far as, you know, like a pleasure. Um, so it's something that was very vivid and kind of, you know, made me want to stay away from him. Um, and we had another friend that did experience that. And it wasn't necessarily in an aggressive way. It was kind of in a sexual way. And she said, I, I, you know, not into this, so I don't want to you know, date you or whatever anymore. So all of this information doesn't necessarily lead me to believe that he actually did commit this crime. I, like I said, he was boastful. He was on a lot of drugs. Mm-hmm. But I do think that he has some kind of contact with somebody who did commit this crime. Pretty shocking stuff, right? Well, I thought the interview might be over, but then it went to another step. In fact, it took a more shocking turn. The woman describes herself as a young 17-year-old at the time, doing as we all did, sneaking into those bars, acting probably a little much older than we should have. She says at the local bar of the Globe, you all know it and we all love it, she not only encountered Ant, but get this, several other people. As far as the lawyer... That person who I believe, who you haven't said his name, I knew him as a and he did hang out at the Globe. I do know that those two people would know each other. Um, just because it's a small town, I do know, and I didn't know well either. Um, I, my parents were much, much more stricter, much more strict than my friends. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't really able to just roam around town how I felt, um, where you know, they, they had a little bit more lenience. Yes, those annoying beeps you heard were the names of two local attorneys, one of which is on our persons of interest list. 
Uh, so I would assume that these that and Ant would know each other. I know that we would, you know, ask one of my friends if they wanted red run smoke joints and you know so on. But he never gave off a a negative vibe that I know of or was ever told about as far as like aggressive towards women of in of in any way. But it is a bit odd because he was so much older. Well, not so. I mean, it seems like so much older now, but. You know, so much older than, you know, 16, 17-year-old girls. So, yeah, I would assume that those people, they hung out the same places. And I would assume that they would know each other. And so that is kind of the link that I have, um, of the information that I have. Did you ever know him, Aunt, um, did you ever know him to dabble with, sell, or deal cocaine? Yes. And did you know the attorney in question personally? Yes, um, but I, I don't remember a formal introduction. I do remember, you know, Pat, you know, saying hi and stuff like that. Um, but I, but I, again, I wasn't. My other friends would have known him much closer. But even then, still, it was kind of like, hey, you want to go around the corner and smoke a joint? Yeah. You know, kind of thing. That wasn't a we're best friends. Let's hang out all the time. It was more of a ooh this older lawyer wants to hang out with us and he's cool you know that kind of thing you know young stupid mm-hmm. girls thinking it's cool when you're an adult you're like this isn't cool but yes no i know that yeah he that aunt did use and would sell pretty much anything and did you ever specifically know the aunt and the attorney that we continue to talk about to know one another or hang out together not that i can recall mm-hmm not that I could say. I, I know that the likelihood of them being in the same place at the same time is very high. Um, they hung out at the same places. Um, the Globe, um, there, there's a, the Velvet Elvis used to be on the square. Aunt hung out in the square a lot, which is, you know, college square. Um, the likelihood of them being in, in the same situation is, is great. Now, I took this a step further after our interview. I sent this source a photo lineup of some individuals associated with the case from the time period. She identified one specific photo as being one specific attorney that has been the subject of the podcast. Now, let me just say, again, this doesn't mean that the attorney is guilty. What it does mean is that it establishes the aunt and another person of interest in the same circles at the same time. So what do people from the Globe remember? What about other friends of Ant and the woman who have spoken out? And what do the Bakers feel about where we are now and where we're headed? Next time on Classic City Crime, I'm Cameron J. Classic City Crime is hosted by me, Cameron J, co-produced and designed by Kyle Kazaya. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Classic City Crime. Email us with story tips or suggestions at ClassicCityCrime at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on the web at ClassicCityCrime.com. Do you listen on Apple Podcasts? Be sure to leave us a five-star rating and write a review. We'd really appreciate it. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>